arms ringing. <laughs> never. She never phones anymore. Hello and welcome to Lecture in Progress. I'm your host, Will Hudson. Lecture in Progress is an educational resource to help the next generation of creators make better career decisions by inspiring and informing them of the breadth of opportunities that exist in the creative industry. We've launched the first version of the website alongside a Kickstarter campaign to get the project off the ground. There are some great rewards. Please do check them out at lectureinprogress.com. This podcast series includes a number of conversations with creatives about how they got to where they are and how they've come to do what they do, from graphic designers and illustrators to photographers and filmmakers. This podcast series includes a number of conversations with creatives about how they got to where they are and how they've come to do what they do. My guest in this episode is Editor-in-Chief of Riposte magazine, Danielle Pender, and I started, as always, by asking them to describe what it is that they do. I am the ed- currently the Editor-in-Chief at Riposte magazine, um, which is a magazine that I founded in 2013. It's a smart magazine for women, and it, um, we publish twice a year, and we also run monthly events. And I also work, um, I'm the curator at KK Outlet, which is a gallery on Hoxton Square. And how do you balance those two jobs? Um, So I do two days at KK Outlet. um, And in that time, I look after the gallery. I work with our team on um, future programs. I work a little bit on the commercial side of things because we're also the London office of Castles Kramer, which is a communications agency. And then the rest of the time I spend with the team of contributors on Repost, and I work really closely with Shaz Madani. Um, she's our creative director. So, um, yeah, I spend sort of three days a week on Repost. Amazing. And because I know you, well, I know you from before you came to London, but you were at KK, you were kind of there as they started doing that gallery program. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So they opened in 2008 and the idea was, um, so they'd been going maybe 12 years in Amsterdam um, and they have... So in that was, amazing church, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's amazing. So they have a really grand, like 14th century church and we have a basement <laughs> in London. <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> um, so they wanted to open somewhere in London, but they didn't just want to be another art agency. Um, so Eric Kessels, the founder, publishes books. He does exhibitions. And then they do really interesting communications work. So they wanted a sort of multifunctional space um, that did all three. And then I started in 2009 um, when it was, I think, five people. And now it's about 20. Um, Yeah. And those those two jobs, I think we'll come on to talk about more of them after we've kind of revisited how you got to that point. But do those two, how much do those two jobs inform each other? Or actually, can they kind of operate as, as very separate silos and mindsets and everything that goes with it? Yeah, I try to keep them as separate as possible, to be honest. Sometimes there is crossover. So we'll have, like, in June, we've got a show at KK with Laura Callahan, the illustrator, um, and we've worked with her on Repost. She's done some, she's illustrated some features in the past. Um, but as far as KK are concerned, they've been really supportive of what I do outside of work, so I don't really want to sort of step on their toes too much. <laughs> So I'm quite conscious to keep them separate. I mean, obviously the contacts are always uh, they're uh, useful, but yeah, I kind of keep them separate. Great. Uh, so obviously from your accent, people can tell you grew up in <laughs> Manchester. <laughs> yep. <laughs> no, you grew up in the Northeast in, in Newcastle? No. Well, yeah, I say that, but like basically a shitty little town. Can I swear? <laughs> yeah, you can swear. Why not? <laughs> um, a little town outside of Gateshead, basically in the suburbs called Burtley. But that's 
really I don't know you don't need to know that I don't know I know Newcastle though yeah yeah it's good it's it's amazing city it's kind of I love going back but I think it has um yeah it's quite small and there's like it has its own cultural scene but I think a lot of people want to get away from their own hometown and it has yeah so what was kind of what did Newcastle offer or the the whole of the northeast growing up kind of creatively have you have you is is kind of because you obviously work quite heavily within the creative industry although yeah. I guess Riposte even though it's got creative sensibility it's maybe more um anchored in the kind of editorial which isn't necessarily creative it's it's it features uh, females from across disciplines doesn't it yeah I'm, I'm saying this thinking oh my god have I do I know what Riposte is yeah okay what Let's is it again, Google, again. Yeah. Google. but what um kind of what do you relate to what do you look back on growing up um around Newcastle that maybe informs um, what you do today I think there's a few things. So when I was, yeah, I was like a teenager in the 90s. So I was really into like riot girl music. And because Newcastle was a bit barren, to be honest, um, but they did have, um, they had like really lame, cheesy pubs. And then they had sort of alternative bars where bands and that kind of thing. So the music side of thing really influenced me and that sort of you really had to hunt out things that were interesting like now I think it's so easy to be inspired you can look anywhere you want like on your fingertips at your fingertips and it's really uh, instant but that made it a little bit more special and um yeah and I kind of I really I still like hunting things out like I love trying to find really in- interesting women that people might not have heard of and uncovering the sort of different angles but also I really remember um like the boys that I went to school with were real little toe rags they were they were pretty yeah they were just like super laddie and that really had an effect on me because I remember thinking that like girls were super lame and boys were really cool and then and and now I realize that that's not true (laughs) but I had that thing in my head that girls to be liked you had to be like a boy or you had to sort of ingratiate yourself now I think that's bullshit and that so through repost I really try and show that being a girl is equally as awesome as being a boy you don't do you know kind of with with repost is there a target um age group that you're trying to talk to I think like do you, do you imagine yourself as a kind of teenager being able to engage with repost I think maybe it's a bit too old for like teenagers there's some great um stuff out for teenage girls like school of doodles just started and obviously rookie <clears throat> and um there's like loads of art whole collective and places on on instagram i think our audience is maybe just a little bit older so maybe it's early 20s 25 and up to sort of however old like my mom reads it Good. She says she reads it. (laughs) Come on, we all know. (laughs) She knows she's on the cover. Um, But as you kind of, as you uh, grew up in in Newcastle, you worked on film festivals, is that right? Yeah. So what, so kind of, there was an interest there in film that led to it or it just happened to be something that you were like, well? Um, I think because the Townside Cinema was one of the only um, cultural hubs in Newcastle at the time. It's like this, it was this really tiny um, two- screen cinema now it's kind of been developed but it still shows um art house and independent cinema um and I always wanted to work there because it looked really cool and 
And I started, I volunteered there and then I got a job as an usher and then they ran um, film festivals, so a Scandinavian film festival and then an um, audiovisual film festival. And then I started working on them because they were sort of events-based. It wasn't just film. There was a lot of um, exhibitions and crossovers. So that was always really interesting. And was it the actual content of that stuff you enjoyed? So the actual films or the, the kind of the, the content of those shows? Or was it more actually putting something together and and being part of, of yeah. that and seeing other people come and enjoy it? Yeah, I think it was um, working as part of a team and putting things on that were creative and and working with creative people and then seeing people enjoy it. I think that was more than... I'm not a massive film buff. I don't... Uh, don't like I'm not going to test you. I don't watch Fellini like, on those questions. <laughs> Nice. Um, yeah, I think it was more sort of bringing people together and making things happen that I really liked. And that then eventually, I say eventually, as if it took you ages to get to university, <laughs> but you did mention that you, um, or you mentioned prior to this, that you didn't actually start university until you were 21, yeah. which you think helped. Um, what was that to study and whereabouts was that? It was at Northumbria and I did History of Modern Art, Film and Design. And that was, it was amazing because you could really... Um, basically design your own course you could pick whatever modules you wanted and watch like Iranian film on a Tuesday at nine o'clock if you wanted oh, living the dream any excuse to find <laughs> Tuesday morning just fancy some Iranian <laughs> cinema um and that and that was really amazing it was quite it was such a luxury like going to the library you could read all sorts of obscure stuff and for three years that was yeah I loved it and I don't think I would have d- I wouldn't have appreciated it as much if I'd gone when I was 18. I would have definitely got hammered every night. and Because you definitely didn't do that. <laughs> let's just clear that up. Yeah. Um, so uh, so it's, it's, it's interesting because I guess a lot of the people that we're talking to as part of this series um, are creatives in the sense of, of they had their own creative outputs, a portfolio of work that they had created. What kind of what what do you feel as if you left with kind of I'm trying to I'm trying to kind of work out the course what kind of stuff were you actually doing um so what do you mean what I left university with yeah like I guess I'm I'm just trying to understand a little bit more about the course because you I, I've forgotten the name of it now <laughs> oh it's, it's like, a total waste of time <laughs> great so don't go to uni um Okay, so... No, I think I left uni with a real appreciation and understanding of a broad range of topics. So from Iranian cinema to like 1950s design and graphic design and propaganda posters and all sorts of different things. And that, I think, sort of fed into my um, interest in curation and editing and, and having that sort of editorial mindset of piecing things together and making stories. And I think, and also it just, yeah, it really honed my research skills and a sort of interest in a lot of different things. Because we we first met as a, as a result of Design Event, which is a, um, I've now got to try and articulate this without having done the research. You can probably tell me more. It's a, it's it, was a, a, it is, I think it's still going. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's a design festival that runs in Newcastle. And at the time that we met it was 2007. And, it, and the Northeast had loads and loads of funding. And they had, um, Newcastle was design city of the year or something. Um, and so design events basically 
was a program of different exhibitions, programs, screenings. So how soon after graduating did you end up working there? There, um, maybe a couple of years. So what was, when you graduated from uni, what, would, what were you looking to do? What was that kind of entry into? Um, at the time, so when I was still at uni, I worked at the Tyneside Cinema. And then when I left, I started working on the film festivals full time. <clears throat> and then from that... And do you think in order to get the jobs within the film festivals, was that degree kind of instrumental to that? Was that the kind of, was that the thing that whoever was giving you that job felt yeah. like they could trust you and go? Yeah, I think it was definitely key because, yeah, it was you needed a sort of base knowledge of film and I think that kind of showed that you're, you were interested in it and you weren't just going to sit and eat Soleros at the back. <laughs> Although I did that. <laughs> um, so... Can you remember kind of, were, were there any specific things in those first few years that you kind of were big lessons or kind of flip side of that, were there any big mistakes that you made that actually led to progressing? I think um, just doing a lot of different things was really good. Um, like being up for it, I think just getting involved. I wasn't too precious about the jobs that I did when I was at whatever job. I just got involved and got busy um I think that thing of just not in a sort of really horrible networky way but just like being nice to people and remembering people and keeping in touch with people I think is always I still that's still useful I think it's, it's what networking is still one of those things that is is it's um it's like when you put your hobbies so I enjoy cinema reading and networking and it's like networking isn't something that you go shit it's uh it's Tuesday morning can't watch the Iranian film I've got to go and do some networking it's it is just a very and I think maybe it's just different people but there's a um it's just meeting people isn't it it's just being up for going and it's as simple as going to the pub and your mates who might have studied similar things who are working in a similar field introduce you to someone that you meet and don't see again for six months but in six months it's when they're saying oh we've got this job or we've got that job or it's a very it's a very strange concept that that while you're studying and kind of emerging that you you need to go and do a bit more networking (laughs) so i followed five people on twitter today that that doesn't count um so then you move from that to um design event yeah and the role within design event it was curatorial was putting on the programme, which yep. was in the autumn every year? Yes. Um, yeah, it was an annual event and I worked, there was a couple of us on the team and then I worked on the sort of programming and getting in touch with people and and the two of us worked on um, making sure that there was a broad range of different uh, events and that kind of thing. And then the Bright Lights of London. Yes. What was... Um, <laughs> I guess I'm interested in, I mean, I grew up in Birmingham and ended up in kind of London via Brighton and then um, back down in Brighton. What kind of growing up in Newcastle, was London always kind of, was that always somewhere that you imagine you'd end up? Do you think it's in order to do what you do? I mean, other than the fact that KK is based in London, so you can't kind of go, no, I'd love to have stayed up there. Why don't you come to Newcastle? But was London growing up kind of something that you always assumed would happen? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think um, I always knew that I wanted to move away. And uh, yeah, London was always on the, um, was always somewhere that I wanted to live. I just think 
I used to read the Face magazine and ID and there was just, and then looking at stuff online and it was just like, it just felt like everything was happening here. And, and I don't necessarily think that's true. I just think it's disproportionately covered now that I'm here. Obviously there is loads of stuff happening, but um, yeah, I just really wanted to sort of be in amongst it. And I kind of felt um, frustrated in Newcastle and I felt like I wanted to do more. Was was there a kind of because um, when when did you move to London? That would have been twenty uh, two thousand eight. Oh, was it? It was that soon. Yeah. So was there something? Was it that job in particular, or was it? Um, would you have just kind of moved to London for whatever job, but just in order to get to London? Yeah, I'd I'd sort of set myself um, a time frame. I decided that was it. I was moving. I think it was in the summer, and then I was going to move in October. I don't know why that was the time frame. And then I just went about, I got a list of loads of different studios, loads of different people that I liked. And I just sent them speculative emails with my CVs, spammed everybody. <laughs> and what was the response to that? What kind of, can you, were there other people uh, that you can share? Maybe not name them specifically, but was the feedback or? Some people, I mean, they, everyone must get tons. I get tons of those emails now and everyone must get them. And some people were really sweet. Anthony Burrell emailed us back, said, Hiya, I'm down in Kent on my own. <laughs> Can't take an intern. Um, yeah, some of the people got back. And then actually it was just really uh, such a coincidence because the two people who were at KK, they were leaving. And KK's hiring policy isn't that uh, brilliant. So I think my email dropped and they were like, sweet, someone can start next week. <laughs> Uh, and then, yeah, and then I, it, yeah, it was just really lucky. And you got interviewed, you kind of... Yeah, I came down for two interviews. I think I pretended that I lived in London at the time. I had my friends... Did you talk differently or... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I just, yeah, I put on an accent. Um, and then, yeah, I had two interviews, which were just in the pub. And then... Um, and it was all good. And then I had a phone interview with Eric Kessels, which is one of the most awkward phone interviews I've ever had. <laughs> and also, he's someone that speaks with a pretty strong Dutch yeah. accent. That would have been a fascinating... Oh. Uh, and he always has these really long pauses between his sentences. So then I was I was super eager and I was just like, hey, yeah, anyway, yeah. Um, I was just saying about your website. <laughs> and he must have just been like, shut up. <laughs> um, amazing. But it worked. Yeah. You got the job. Yeah. And it's also, it's worth saying that that's the job that you got in 2008 and you're still there. So obviously you're kind of, you're enjoying it. You're. Yeah. It's, to be fair, it's such, I love that company. Like I really, um, they are super supportive and they have a real entrepreneurial spirit. And I think that, and it's just such a mixed bag of things that go on. And my role has ch really changed from what it was when I started. And, and I think, yeah, just the people at the top, they have a real, um, they're just really creative. Like all of the stuff that Eric does is always really interesting and it's always really nice to see him. And He's got some amazing book projects, hasn't he? Yeah. The collections of photographs. But he, that's just his life. Like he, he uh, he's just always on the hunt for something interesting. And the, the one series that I absolutely love are photos that he's taken himself of where his kids have fallen over. Yeah. <laughs> And he's photographed them. So there's this book of kind of kids with like bleeding noses or scratches. And his take on it is that it's a much more honest um, 
kind of when you look back on those photos, it's a much more honest portrayal of how they've grown up as opposed to the very cliched, smiling kind of. And I, I love that idea. Yeah. Not to the point that I've kind of don't pushed over your kids. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, not yet. But hey, that's that's an idea. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and after we will chat to Danielle more about what she does with Repost. Thanks for listening. I just wanted to take this quick opportunity to tell you a little bit more about Lecture in Progress. Lecture in Progress is a resource to help the next generation of creatives make better career decisions by inspiring and informing them of the breadth of opportunities that exist in the creative industry. Aware that the gap between education and industry is only widening, Lecture in Progress will help demystify the creative world we work in. We'll explain everything from the huge range of jobs that exist, how people got into the industry and how much you can expect to get paid, right through to how a project comes together and taking a look into the studios and workplaces in which they happen. We see Lecture in Progress being funded through annual membership, largely made up of current students and recent graduates. We're aiming to build a relationship with these members as the site grows and develops over the next 12 months, and we want to make sure that we deliver the content that they will find most useful and that can't be found anywhere else. Members to Lecture in Progress will get full access to the website and archive, become part of a network of like-minded individuals, they'll receive member-only offers and promotions and invitations to events, they'll also have the opportunity to apply for funding for creative projects, they'll be invited to studio visits as well as entry to our annual awards programme. Please do check out the first version of the website at lectureinprogress.com. There we've put together a number of articles and resources that best demonstrate what we plan to do. You can also find a link to the Kickstarter campaign that will be running throughout October. We've tried to make it as simple as possible to get behind the project and hope you'll like the rewards we've made, many of which are only available on Kickstarter. Please do back the project, and all being well, we'll be back on the 1st of January 2017. Back to the interview. Hello and welcome back. Uh, I'm here with Danielle Pender of uh, Repost Magazine and KK Outlet. Um, I feel like we've we've talked about your... um, growing up and your way into what you currently do. I want to chat a little bit more about Repost Magazine. Uh, a great magazine, both content, design, it kind of it all comes together. It's something that I think in the studio here, everyone looks forward to seeing it come out and, and, and a copy will kind of quite happily pass its way around the studio. There's other stuff that comes through that kind of is maybe a little bit forced, just checking people have seen stuff. When, when did the idea of Repost first come about how long had you kind of been harboring that idea before it actually became a reality um so i went i got married in 2000 a few years ago i can't remember the date wow (laughs) we might edit that out there's a good chance we'll probably keep it in uh i got married and i was at the airport and i was looking for something interesting to read and I was that that was when I remember being struck by how lame women's magazines are were I think they're slightly better now but at the time it was just utter garbage and so then I started thinking about it when we were away and um I think yeah I was kind of looking to do a side project anyway and I've always been interested in magazines um I've always wanted to do one from when I was yeah from when I was younger um so I started thinking about that and what it could be and then looking at the magazines that I read, um, which were a lot more men's magazines for the broader range of content. And what, what kind of men's magazines? <clears throat> um, specifically, I went through a stage of reading Monocle quite a lot and then I realised I'm not a high net 
individual. <laughs> I don't think anyone. Like, <laughs> I, I, I think Monica is a, a really interesting example yeah. in that I think the the content, the depth, the design, it is something that feels so super considered. Yeah, definitely. And I think they really, what I really like about Monocle is that they find the really interesting people in the different cities and they really hunt out and profile um, people who are doing things differently. Um, and they, they don't just go for like the, the obvious uh, cities or what are stories. Um, so, I mean, again, if you, if you take Monocle as an example, that's... Um, that's obviously run by Tyler Brule, who's pretty established in terms of setting up wallpaper and selling that. And yeah. even that Monocle team, the Monocle masthead, I think is one of the most intimidating mastheads, yeah. not just for the people <laughs> that work in that office, but the bureaus around the world. Um, so how do you how how does how do you look at something like that and then try and work out how you do it kind of on a with using that as an inspiration, but knowing full well, yeah. as a lot of independent publishers, ourselves included, know that you can't front that staff, that yeah. everything that goes into it. Yeah, I kind of then just, I think as well, when we started out, I just didn't have, I was really naive and I think I still am really naive and I think that's a good thing because if you don't know what you don't know, you can't put yourself off. Um, and so I just put together a really lame word document of what I thought would be interesting in the different sections, what kind of, articles it would feature I met Shaz Madani um, I chatted to her about it she was really up for it how, how did that conversation come about how do you because because I think not just in independent publishing but publishing of all scales that editor-in-chief and creative director art director is such a important relationship to yeah. get right what was it either about Shaz or how did you how did you come to meet Shaz that kind of you had that confident of going yes let's you're the right person to do this. I'd seen some of her work quite a while ago. I think she, she'd made this thing when she was at uni and it was uh, stare at the screen all day, go home, stare at the screen all night. I, I think that was it. But I just, her style was really, I really liked her work. And then actually I was going to do something with another girl and that fell through and she put me and Shaz in touch. And then we just met and we're really different, but I think that works really well. And I, I really love working with Shaz. I think... Um, our differences complement each other. And um, I think we got really lucky because, yeah, I, I didn't know it before and it could have it could have just been one issue and then fizzled out. Um, but her, although we're different, I think our ethos is the same and we like similar things. And so there's enough of a balance um, that it works. And from that early uh, Word document that you put together of these the kind of articles, how close is that? How close was that to that first issue? Um, yeah, it was. It was actually pretty close um, because then also saying that I, that KK and Riposte don't cross over, they really did at the start because I thought, who do I know? Who writes? Who takes photographs? Uh, who do I like? Whose work do I like? And then I kind of reached out to them, and so like Liv Siddle, big up Liv, big up Liv. <laughs> um, she has been so good to like sound ideas off and she she suggested Francoise Mooney for the first issue and and uh so people like her working with people like her I think that sort of helped bring it bring it together and what about the kind of the the broader remit of collaborators because again I think the the kind of the sensibilities with the photography with the illustration um and indeed the writers if if someone 
kind of um, if a young creative goes and picks up a copy of Repost, likes it, sees what you do, what kind of how how is the best way for them to get in touch, and how how does that relationship actually manifest itself in commissioning someone? <clears throat> um, and how much is it just you guys having the awareness and going, I really want to work with them, I really want to work with them? Yeah, a lot of it. Yeah, a lot of it is that we keep an eye out and we look for stuff that we like. Um, so people like Sarah Andreasen, Laura Callahan. We work with Laura Brailing on uh, the Anonymous Sex Journal collaboration. And they were, uh, yeah, a lot of people and a lot of the photographers we sort of um, have bookmarked. But we do get a lot of speculative emails and it's, I, ca- I can't um, get back to everybody, but I do try. And like, you, <coughs> excuse me, I've had a couple of uh, emails recently and we're kind of, we've finished uh, issue six, but I will definitely work with the people that emailed for issue seven. And I think it's just about um, having a good representation, like sort your website out, have a good Instagram if you're a creative if you're a writer, have some good PDF examples. Just keep it really simple and don't send really long emails because no one's going to read them. Yeah, I think sometimes there's that, there's that feeling. And I think looking back, I can probably, I'm probably guilty of it. You almost feel that because you're getting in touch with someone, it needs to be this kind of hugely considered long, yeah. in-depth thing. And actually, more, more often than not, address it to someone whose name you know. Yeah. Like any anyone that just emails going, hello, here's my way. It's like, <laughs> it's the easiest one to delete. It's like, and it's not, that doesn't, that, that there's a danger there that it sounds, um, that I'm just desperate to delete emails, but it's not. It's like, there's only so much time in the day to get back to people. Yeah. But actually it's, it's more than acceptable to go, hey, Danielle, this is who I am. This is my work. Here's a link. I love what you do. I'd love the opportunity to work together. Um, let me know what you think. And, and kind of leave it there. And even if you don't get back on the first time. Yeah. I think to just keep and to, to keep positive and remain kind of upbeat about it. And actually, you never know when those things might happen. And also, I think that kind of industry is it, it, both independent publishing and kind of creative industry is small enough that you might very well, it, you might recognize it not as quite being right for repost, but you'll know people that you might forward it onto. Or put yeah, exactly. Touch. And I think as well, people should not take it personally because there's a lot of people that have emailed and for whatever reason, their style doesn't fit the features that we have in that issue. It's not that we don't like their work. It's just that it doesn't f- sort of fit visually. And, and that, that's a big consideration. It's, you can be a great illustrator, but it just doesn't work. Yeah, and I think, I think it's probably quite difficult for young creators to identify that. I think they kind of, they'll, I think, probably open, copy The Guardian and go, hey, there's an editorial illustration. I could do that. Yeah. And actually, people like The Guardian, people like yourselves, have a... They work within an aesthetic. Every now and again, there'll be something that gets commissioned that's out of that. But more often than not, you kind of you know what kind of portraiture yeah. photography you can expect from a magazine or even the editorial illustration. So it's 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 trying to find your feet. It's trying to get. It's trying to it's trying to work out where your work fits. But it's also kind of being confident in what you're doing. Um, going back to kind of getting the magazine off the ground. What were the big um, uh, I'm sure there are many projects that exist as word documents and ideas. And I think everyone's got a mate who talks about that same idea at the pub and you're kind of like, fuck me. <laughs> if you still not done Do that. the idea or I'm going to do the idea um, just so you can stop talking about it. But what are the big, what are those big challenges to take an idea and make it a reality? Um, I 
think I was thinking about this the other day because it's kind of the same. I think money and time and patience. Like I've got, there's a load of ambitious things that I want to do with Repost, but for whatever reason, time constraints or money constraints, I just can't do them either at the minute or even this year. And it's having the the patience to just park it for a while and just do what you can. I think there's a, I think often people either procrastinate or they try and do too much and then they just fuck it up and it just, it looks terrible. Yeah, it's that, it's funny, the sweet spot of mm-hmm. actually between procrastination being too much is actually pretty hard to achieve um but can you remember kind of when you were trying to get it off the ground were there either certain conversations or turning points or or things that you just it went from going oh this would be great to do to actually like oh shit this is this is going to happen this is i'm going to print a magazine yeah i think um actually no it was just to be honest just a really steady like hard work of a period of hard work and just constantly doing little bits and then towards and then we got every all of the content in and Shaz started designing the issue and it's like oh wow this is gonna happen (laughs) and uh and and it's the same with each issue you get to a point where you're like oh my god when is this gonna finish and then you start getting things in and then it all comes together uh repost is more than a magazine yeah um You've got the website, you've got the events, you've got, um, I think you guys always throw good launch parties, something that we fail to do. Not throw good ones, just throw a launch party, I think. It's it's kind of how, um, uh, again, I guess through your background, do, do those things just come very naturally? Yeah, I think the event side of things, I just, I feel really, I, th- I think they're really important to what we do. I think... Um, to be honest, they've kind of, um, yeah, I've always wanted to do events. I think it's a good opportunity to meet your readers. I think it's a good opportunity to get people together. The talks that we started doing have been really good. You get better conversations. And I think people get a more, a sense of, um, it's a bit more real. Like the last one we did was about curation. And we had Lindsay Young, who is uh the curator of contemporary at Tate Britain and she's looking after the Turner Prize. So on paper, she is scary as fuck. <laughs> and actually she was so great on the panel and we had Ligaya Salazar from Fashion Space Gallery and um, Domino Pateman from WOW Festival and, and a couple of other girls, Jade Coles and uh, Christine Santa Anna. And they were all amazing. And But I think as a panel, they seem really intimidating, but they were great and they were just really open and honest and down to earth. And you wouldn't have maybe got that feel if you were just reading an interview or a panel discussion with them. Um, so I think that's really important, the sort of physical experience. And also I think for the to engage the readers in that way as well, which gives them an opportunity to, to see those people... Um, share their opinions and thoughts on things, but also go up afterwards. And I mean, it's weird. People are always far more approachable than you think. It's yeah, very rare definitely. you come across someone that's... Some people that are will... assholes. <laughs> Some people are total douchebags. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, no, I, I can go along with that. But more often than not, the people that... I mean, I can remember, we've done, <coughs> we've, we've done interviews with people where we've been told, oh, oh, you're meeting them. Oh, you better kind of, you know, you know what they're about. And it's like, okay, cool. And then you go meet them and the person's like <laughs> and lovely totally and they, um, they give you twice as long as you thought you were going to get with them. And I think sometimes it's, 
it's surprising, but I also think sometimes it's that it, it is like you say intimidating that on paper someone should have, should feel much more kind of um, unattainable and unapproachable. Yeah, and then actually those people tend to surprise you. Yeah, and more than happy to chat for long periods of time and and talk and follow up on email and and all that stuff, um, which is always quite reassuring. Yeah, I definitely, think, and kind of surprising. Um, if you, what issue of Repost you on now? Uh, number six is due to launch in uh, a few weeks. So how different if you put issue one and issue six alongside each other? What are the big differences that you <coughs> recognise? And what what are the big lessons, I guess, that you've learned both in content or design or other parts of running a magazine from issues one to six? I think, yeah, I think they're quite different. I mean, they're... The writing, I think, is a big thing. Um, and, and for the first issue... It's a pretty big thing with magazine. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's, really, it's really basic. <laughs> but to be honest, the first issue, I was just really glad to like get stuff in and, and get it done. And actually, I think it's really tricky to get good writing and like really... I don't think I'm the best editor. I think it's really tricky to sort of edit down and be confident and have that two-way discussion with a writer. But at the end of the day, it's your magazine. And if if you don't think that those extra thousand words need to be in there, then cut them out. Don't just go with something. Whereas Shut's just there going, just cut, cut thousand words. We'll put two more images in. Exactly. Look, I got two more photos. Let's <laughs> drop them in. But I, but I think within that, I'd, l- I'd love to explore that a little bit more because you talk about not being a great editor, but you've got the... You've, you've been proactive enough to go, here's the magazine that I want. This is what we're going to stand for. I'm commissioning. So it is that there is that balance of wanting to work with great people, but also wanting to make sure that the thing remains true to, to what you're trying to do. And there must have been some difficult decisions in those first six issues. Yeah, definitely. I think, yeah, really difficult. I think, um, and it, because whenever we've commissioned a few things that haven't worked out and it's having the confidence to think if someone's doing something for free or very little money, it's it's really tricky to say to them, that's not what we wanted or that's not what we had in mind because that doesn't mean it's bad or that work is, isn't of standard. It just means that it's not right for the magazine and having that discussion is really, I find that really awkward and the same with writing when we get back interviews if the tone's not right if it's too heavy if we're not we call ourselves a smart magazine for women but we're not like hyper intellectuals and I and I kind of yeah really we have to strike that balance between offering something intelligent but not being like super dry so no one wants to read that (laughs) um but yeah it's 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 a really tricky balance I think for when you worked with a few people um, a few times and then we've worked with some great people for this issue that we've never worked with before this girl Grace Banks I think she worked for Elephant she did a, an amazing interview and the first edit was just like on on the money um, at the time sometimes that you get that through and you're like I don't, I don't need to touch it yeah, <laughs> do, yeah. I, do I just change a few words and like <laughs> tidy it up to some degree but yeah. yeah hers was amazing she's such a pro so can you kind of, with where you've got to in the first six issues, can you, do you have a vision of, of what the next six issues look like? Does it, is it drastically different? Are the things that you know <clears throat> you've got to improve or work on or yeah, of, what's th- your own self? I of? think um, each issue, we always have a sort of review period and the, where the place that we're at at the minute is, <clears throat> is that um, 
we've kind of uh we've profiled amazing women doing interesting things and that's great but i think from now on we want to have a bit more of an opinion and we did a feature on nova magazine um in the last issue and nova magazine was a an amazing radical women's magazine in the 60s and 70s and they had really um hard-hitting articles and amazing visuals and i don't think everything in repost will be that sort of uh provocative um article on abortion or whatever but we want to have a bit more of a standpoint so this next issue we have um shorter more personal pieces but then we have um a feature on activism and immigration and a few different things but done with really amazing visuals so it's not a sort of guardian piece or something like that but that's we kind of want to move the focus a little bit more more in that way and i think just being really brave with the visuals like really setting the brief properly sitting down with the people that we work with really working together and trying to sort of push things to be as best as they can rather than just getting them in and being like yeah it's all right do you do you seek any kind of external opinion how do you how do you gauge obviously kind of now whenever anyone does anything you can probably find someone talking about it on twitter or um i was gonna say facebook but actually it tends to be twitter um it, are, there, are there any reference points that you kind of sense check stuff? Mm, not really. I kind of, we, I do get emails and I'm really keen to speak to the readers, but I kind of, and then to the people that we, um, to our contributors, but I think you have to be really careful not to be super swayed. I think it's really easy. Everyone's got an opinion and I think it's really easy to sort of lose your, tone of voice or your vision of what you want to be doing and I think that's really key to um to try and not be swayed and and like people say mean things or you could like listen to criticism which I think is a good thing you can't like operate in a bubble but criticism if it's constructive is fair enough if someone's just being an idiot Richard Turley uh tweeted something a couple of weeks ago about it was a I'm gonna just repeat this and it's not gonna be right but the, you'll get the gist but his thing was like the bigger the tree the more wind yeah and it is that thing of I think kind of economies of scale of if you only got an audience of um I don't know 100 people yeah then if one or two are disgruntled you kind of go out as one or two if you then extrapolate that up to Ah oh, shit, my maths is going to get tested now. <laughs> like 10,000 people. So, so you've suddenly got like 100 people who are having a bit of a chat. And sometimes you just got to kind of remind yourself that, that the nature of growing something, you're never going to be able to please everyone. Yeah. Or if you do, I think you're probably doing something wrong because you're not forming an, a strong enough opinion on anything. Exactly. Uh, yeah, I read something a while ago that um, no one does anything that people hate anymore. Like no one does anything that really, apart from Donald Trump, but he's, he's got a lot of love, <laughs> a lot of love for that man. But, he's got um, his haters. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, you've just got to, you've just got to be true to what you believe. And like, I got an email when, when around the launch of the second issue from someone who's actually quite, um, established. I can't believe you actually took the time to send me an email and it was horrific and it was written in capital letters and it was, uh, saying that I should be ashamed of myself and that uh, it was a it was a disgraceful magazine and that we'd ripped off Gentlewoman and 
yada 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 and I got it and I just was like I was totally devastated and it took and I folded it to Shaz and I was like look at this fucking dickhead wrote and then and then deleted it and never replied and I and it it really upsets but now I kind of I hate that guy but I uh but it spurs me on to like do better and actually it's his opinion and he's entitled to that and if he doesn't like it that's fair enough but yeah, it's good to remember that every, not everyone's going to like what you do and it's that's totally fine. Yeah. I think it's difficult though, isn't it, when when you do get those comments. Yeah. And it's just like, there's just a moment that kind of goes, oh, fuck. Yeah. Like, please, please don't say this. Please, like, <laughs> come on, think about it. But it's it's also quite refreshing to just hear, hear you kind of talk about it very honestly and kind of go, it is one person's opinion, it is that. And I think also very naturally with time, you you look at things differently and you can see where something's coming from or you can kind of it, it, it kind of contextualize some of the best advice we got uh, was things are never as good or as bad as you think yeah and time kind of often helps contextualize that stuff yeah and i got a bit, a bit of good advice the other day because i'm i'm quite um over email in caps, <laughs> in caps lock <laughs> dickhead um uh i'm quite like up and down when things go well i'm like ah that's awesome and now i'm trying to be which sounds slightly depressing but a bit more like midpoint so things are always going to go bad and things are always going to be and thing good things will happen and bad things will happen and you can't sort of ride the like the storm of good and bad you kind of have to find your midpoint and think like yes that's good but i just like get on to the next thing Sound advice, sound <laughs> advice. Um, the last question I've got for you today is when you look back on everything that you've done within the context of this conversation, we're not going to kind of veer into other things that you've, <laughs> you've done. That's Cheating on someone. Uh, um, is there anything that you'd have done differently? Is there anything that you look back on and go on, I'd have changed that? Um, I don't know. There's that old adage that you shouldn't, what is it? You shouldn't regret what you done was what you didn't do and I kind of sometimes think like I wish I had moved to London earlier but then I uh, I emailed Carly Schiortino the girl who does Slut Ever and uh, and she's I think she's 29 maybe she's 30 and she talked about how she looks at uh, kids and their people kids who am I <laughs> patronizing <laughs> Uh, she looks at people in their early 20s who have got it sorted and they've got like jobs and everything's happening and they've got like 170 Instagram followers and she's like fuck I was eating out of dumpsters and living in Peckham and living in a squat in Peckham when I was that age but actually I think your experiences make you who you are and she she was talking about being a writer and she's like those experiences were priceless and she still draws on them now and I, th I think you just anything that happens to you you've got to kind of get on with it good or bad and and use it like if someone I always have this thing if someone says no to an interview I'm like gutted but then I think no it's an opportunity just find someone better and then we don't find someone better <laughs> I'm devastated uh, thank you Danielle for all your time today thank you for having me pleasure A big thanks for listening to this episode of Lecture in Progress. The music and sound for this podcast was produced by the wonderful Zelig Sound. Zelig produced some of the best original music and sound design for commercials, TV and films. Check them out at zeligsound.com. 
Do check out the rest of the series on the website at lectureinprogress.com. Do follow us on Twitter at Lecture in Prog for updates. And please do support the Kickstarter. Thanks for listening.